0: It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado, with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's Nathan Johnson. And it's like all the aspects of this mystery, and again, there's, there's layers to this mystery, but all these layers have this culmination and this focus on Jesus Christ. And of course, we keep reading passages like this, but Colossians 1, 26 and 27 says the mystery, which has been hidden from ages and generations, but now has been revealed to the saints, to them, God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Oh, what's the mystery? Paul says, it is Christ in you, the hope of glory, which is an awesome thought. Uh, In Ephesians, Paul says that the mystery is the fact that the Gentiles get to be fellow heirs with the Jews. That is a crazy notion. But how is that being done? Jesus. In fact, we, we keep reading this verse, but Romans eleven thirty six I think is a great summary to this whole thing. And of course, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What a phenomenal thought. That all that God is doing is focus on Jesus Christ. But this is all from him, through him, and to him. For his praise and his renown and for his glory. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. So what I want to do is uh, we've been walking through this idea of the mystery and was kind of talking about the mystery as a whole. Uh, we looked at the mystery as seen in the Old Testament and the fact that even though, even though it's a mystery, it's not like it's a purposeful hidden thing, right? It's not like some, you know, illusion or some magic trick that nobody can figure out and, you know, you, you, you don't, you're not initiated into it, so therefore I can't tell you the secret. The idea is there's this mystery and, oh, God wants you to know the mystery and it's actually all over the place. But it's almost only by the revelation and the insight. Even, even uh, verse 8 talks about this idea that God has lavished his grace on us and all wisdom and insight, that he's given us the capacity to understand this mystery. And when we look and, and have this revelation that God's given us, and we look back at the Old Testament, we go, oh, this thing is all over the place. And again, this, this mystery, is, it's been hidden, but it's been hidden in plain sight. And God is revealing, he's unveiling the realities of this incredible mystery known, known as Jesus all throughout history. So this is all kind of culminating into this idea. So what I want to do is I want to walk through verses 9 and 10, and I want to give you five aspects of this mystery. Again, as we're looking at what Paul's writing, it's like he gives five concepts related to this idea of the mystery. Uh, so I'm just going to walk through those. Uh, number one is this idea of the pleasure. Uh, It says in verse 9 that he's making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Uh, Some translations say according to his purpose. But what's interesting, that Greek word for good pleasure shows up nine times in the New Testament. It can be translated well-pleasing, desire, or intention. And again, the idea of the intention is where we get this idea of the purpose. Uh, But again, it's, it's, it's his delight. Uh, it's it's his pleasure. Uh, it, it's his well-pleasing, just oh, this is oh this excites me kind of stuff. That God just oh he just delights in revealing the mystery. That a neat thought. That it's not that God is just hoarding the mystery. It's not that he's just saying, well, you know, if you pay me $50, I'll, I'll give you the mystery. You know, I'll let you in on the secret. It's it is his delight that this whole mystery is coming about, and the whole mystery is according to his good pleasure. That he just, oh, he just gets excited. It's like Christmas morning. You know, it's like when you're a little kid and you're, uh, you wake up and you're like, oh, it's morning. And so you run down the stairs and you're like, okay, wake up, 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 mom and dad. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Why? Because there's presents, right? It's like God has that idea with this mystery. That God is just, oh, he's just delighting this thing. And he's just, oh, he, oh, there's this mystery. And I just, I want to reveal the mystery. And this whole mystery is according to my delight. My pleasure, my satisfaction, my desire, says God. Which is exciting. Because this isn't some drab kind of a thing. This isn't a bummer kind of stuff. This is like, oh, God is excited about this mystery. Which probably means we should be excited about this mystery. And again, what is the mystery? Jesus. And the fullness of Jesus. Just a great thought. So, when you look at this idea that God desires... It's just like, oh, it just bubbles forth. You realize that's kind of been the tenor of this whole passage. Uh, You go back into verse 8, and we're talking about this Niagara waterfall of grace, that God is excited. He just, according to the riches of his grace, he is lavishing his grace upon us. What is that? That's desire. That's excitement. That's according to his good pleasure and purpose, that he just delights in pouring forth grace. He delights in unveiling this mystery. He delights himself in the mystery. Because this is all according to his good pleasure. So, oh, by the way, if you continue in this whole idea of the mystery, you realize as you walk through the aspects of the mystery, these are all of God's delight. It is God's delight to indwell you, Colossians. Right? It is, uh, in Ephesians 3, it is his delight that the Gentiles become fellow heirs with the Jews. Uh, it is his delight, in Romans eleven thirty six that everything in heaven and earth is focused upon and centered around Jesus Christ. See, this is, oh, this is his big deal. This is his one capstone passion and desire. So all this idea of the the pleasure. Uh, Number two is this idea of the purpose. So all this is according to his pleasure, but it says that he's taken this mystery, which is according to his good pleasure, and it is purposed in himself, which is an interesting thought. Uh, So not only then is God delighting in the mystery, this mystery is then purposed within himself. Now the word for purpose in the Greek gives this idea uh, of setting something before oneself to plan or purpose in advance or, maybe it's even better than this, to determine. Uh, One scholar translates translates this idea as the purpose is God's own free determination originating in his own gracious mind. In other words, this purpose is in Christ Jesus. In other words, this purpose is according to his plan. This purpose is that which he has set forth in himself. This purpose is that which he has determined. In other words, this isn't like a, well, I know, what should I do today? Well, I guess we'll have this, have this purpose. No, there's just been this longing which is why this mystery has been hidden from ages and generations, but now is being revealed. See, this isn't a last-minute decision. This is not a last-minute plan that's been crafted just in the nick of time. This plan has been from the ages and generations, and even before time began, God has had one single desire. What is that? The preeminence of Jesus Christ. That God is going in one direction. What is that? The centrality of Jesus Christ. So, again, this, this whole thing is purposed in himself. Now, I love this idea that the word, uh, oh, sorry, let me say this too. This whole idea of the purpose, what it also means is that Jesus is the key instrument, the instrumentality of the purpose. In other words, if the purpose is in Jesus, then the one bringing about the purpose is Jesus. Does that make sense? In other words, the purpose finds its fulfillment in Jesus, but Jesus is also the means which is bringing about or causing This mystery to take place. It's a little abstract. Uh, Let's see. What a good example. Uh, I'm going to clean the lake. It needs a lot of cleaning. So I'm going to drain the water, and I'm going to pick up all the trash, and I'm going to fill the water back up. The instrument, the means by which which that is happening, is Nathan goes out there and drains the lake. He picks up the trash. He's the instrument of making this thing happen. You realize we're talking about a mystery and we're talking about a purpose and we're talking about a plan. And the instrument that's making all this happen is Jesus. That he is the mystery, but he's also the instrument bringing this thing about. Does that make sense? Maybe. (laughs) In other words, he's the one making this possible. He's the one causing this thing to take place. Now, I love this idea that it says that this is purposed in Christ Jesus. And the word for in, in, in Greek, is the Greek word in, e n. in. That makes sense? So our word in Christ is the Greek word in, e n. Now the word in in Greek is really fascinating. In does not convey motion. Uh, there's a word in Greek that has this idea of to come into the room. For example, all of you at some point this morning came in to the room. That's not this word. Uh, there's a word in Greek that has this idea that, you know, that you're going to like leave the room, right? And you're going to go in somewhere else. That's not this word. This word in Greek has this idea of like remaining, resting. Right now, you have no movement. You're sitting in a chair. You are in this room. You're just, you're abiding in the room. You're resting in the room. Do you realize that that's what's happening here with the purpose and the plan? That it's in Christ Jesus, which means that the plan did not come from Jesus. It's not coming out of Jesus. The plan itself is in Jesus. In other words, this is, this literally, this whole purpose and plan rests in Him. Either this is at His heart. Uh, this, this is, he is at the center of this whole purpose. That this, this whole thing is just, oh, it's in Jesus. is it coming from him well yeah but that's not the focus the focus is that it's jesus and this whole thing is wrapped up in the person not what he's giving us it's just the person which is this kind of a neat idea Uh, the third aspect of this whole thing then brings us to the plan so this whole thing is according to his good pleasure and it's all according to this purpose which is in christ (coughs) oh (laughs) sorry choking me up powerful Uh, which is in Christ Jesus, which brings us to the plan. And it says, Paul says, as a plan for the fullness of time. So what is this purpose that is centered upon and caused by Christ Jesus? Well, Paul says, which he purposed in himself as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. Do you know what the plan is? It is to unite all things in Christ Jesus. That word "plan" in the Greek is interesting. It means a household manager, and it conveys this idea of administration, dispensation, a plan or effect, and it gives this idea of a position of a steward, an overseer, a manager, a household—or sorry, a steward of a household or an economy. In other words, it's not talking about a period of time. Oh, I have this plan that later this afternoon I'm going to go this. I'm going to go do this. It's not that kind of a plan. This idea of a plan, then, is more of the administration of affairs. That, hey, we're going to set this thing in order, and we're going to nail this thing down, and we're going to figure this thing out. In other words, uh, Saturday afternoon shows up, and it's going to be campus work day, and Mallory has a plan. Right? Well, what time is it? That's, hey, don't worry about the time. It's going to be all day long. Right? But there's a plan. And what is, what is Mallory doing? She's given administration to all the work duties. That's this kind of an idea. Make sense? So God has this plan. Well, what's the plan? It's this organization. There's this system that there is this management. Uh, I love what Adam Clark says in his commentary about this. He says this word, meaning plan, is the same word as our word economy signifying the plan which the master of a family or a steward has established for the management of the family. He goes on and says, "...it signifies also a plan for the management of any sort of business, and here it means the dispensation of the gospel, that plan by which God has provided salvation for a lost world, and according to which he intends to gather all believers, both Jews and Gentiles, into one church under Christ Jesus, the head and governor." So God has a plan. Oh, there's a time thing? No, no, no. Not, don't, don't worry about the time. But he is crafting this thing. He is organizing this thing. He is bringing it all about. He is, he's managing this thing in Christ. Now, he does say it's a plan for the fullness of time. Oh, but that word, the fullness of time, is really interesting. Uh, in this case, it, it's not so much focused on an amount of time, but as, as, as like this idea of completion. Uh, in other words, I have this cup. I have this pitcher of water. And when I take the pitcher of water and I pour it into the cup, it's beginning to be filled up. And what Paul is saying is in the fullness of time. In other words, when that cup can no longer hold even another single droplet of water, oh, it's completely full. That makes sense? It is the fullness of the time. That, that's this idea. So when the, when the fullness of time takes place, hey, the plan will be fully accomplished. Now, stick with me. I know this is going—it's getting a little complicated. In Greek, there are two key different words, two main words for the word time. One is Chronos, like chronology. Chronos—it has, has the idea of quantity of time. So you're sitting in your seat and you look at your watch and you're wondering how much longer we're going to go on, right? You're like, how much <laughs> longer is he going to keep speaking, right? We're talking about Chronos right? We're talking about a chronology. We're talking about the amount of time. That's not this word. The fullness of time idea is the other word is kairos. So chronos has to deal with quantity of time. Kairos has to, has to do with the quality of time. Uh, you hang out with your best friend and you said, wow, we had a great time. And someone says, well, how much time did you spend with spend with them? I, don't, I have no idea. Well, then how do you know how you had a great time? Like, was it one hour of great time, was it 20 minutes of great time? You're like, that, that doesn't matter. We just had a great time. The quality of the time was amazing. That's this idea. The amount does, doesn't matter. The focus is not on the amount of time, the focus is on the whoa, the quality of the time. Now you can also have this idea of like, it's the perfect time. Well, at this perfect moment, this showed up, right? Or at this perfect moment, this took place. There's that kind of idea with this idea of Kairos. So think about this: As a plan, this God is administrating, He's managing the fullness of time. Oh, so he's really concerned about the calendar date. No. Oh, he's, he's counting down the days. No. That in the perfect timing, in the exact moment when it is absolutely right, that's when the fullness of the mystery will be accomplished. So so do we have like two more years? I don't don't know. That's not the focus of the passage. The focus of the passage is not with the actual time or the date on a calendar. The focus of the passage then is when God determines the timing to be absolutely perfect, then the fullness of the mystery will have taken place. Isn't that an interesting thought? Uh, By the way, that same concept shows up with the return of Christ. Uh... Jesus says that only the Father knows the chronos of when the Son returns. He, only, he knows the date and the hour. Oh, so, so we, can, we can figure out when he's returning. Jesus says no, because only the Father knows that. But isn't it interesting that Jesus gives us the kairos of when, he re, when he's returning? He talks about when the timing is going to be perfect. He talks about, oh, this is going to be the moment. He says, oh, hey, everything's going to be looking just like this when I'm showing up. The focus is not on the chronos, the the, the timing, the, the date kind of stuff. The focus is on the quality of it, the perfect timing of it, which is an interesting thought. And so many of us get so wrapped up in the timing, the date kind of stuff, that we miss the whole point of it, which is the kairos, the quality of it. Just a fun side note. So think about this. What we can draw from this is the fact that when when God is moving and when he's acting, it seems like he's less worried about the chronos, the actual date and time, which should make sense because he's eternal, (laughs) because he's outside of time. So he's not worried about the time. What he's worried about is the perfect timing. That's true in our lives. Hey, God, why haven't you done this in my life yet? Hey, that was supposed to show up yesterday. God's like, settle down. I'm not worried about your date and your calendar. I'm worried about perfect timing stuff. Interesting thought. So get this idea. So with great delight and phenomenal pleasure, Jesus is making known. God is unveiling this mystery to us. And he has a strategic plan that is being worked out in our midst even to this day. And we'll continue To do so until God's perfect timing determines the completion of the end. That God is just, oh, perfect timing kind of stuff. So that all comes and brings us to this idea of the point of the whole thing. So like, what's the point? Just one interesting side note. Uh, Some Jewish scholars were pointing out that from the Jewish perspective, during the time of Jesus, during the time of Paul, That the Jews believed that God was sovereignly working to bring all of history to a promised climax. That in the mind of a Jew, that God had one agenda, that he was sovereignly working all the good, all the bad, all this stuff, and all of history to one single climactic point. And it's like Paul picks up on that idea and he says, Do you know what that point is? Do you know what this whole climactic reality is? Do you know what God has been doing throughout all of history? Do you know how he's been steering this whole thing up to this point? It's, as he says, to unite all things in Christ. Now that word, unite all things in Christ, I'm not going to try to pronounce it. It's like a Greek word of like 20 letters. It's just a massive word. But it conveys this idea of to gather together or to summarize. Do you know what God is doing? He's gathering together. He's summarizing all things in Christ Jesus. Now that word, the one I can't pronounce, only shows up two times in the New Testament. Now, obviously, one of them is here in our passage. But if you have your Bibles, flip over to Romans 13. And I just want to give you the other one really quick. In Romans chapter 13, Paul uses this word, this whole unite all things to summarize, to gather together, uh, in Romans 13, verse 9. Now, to give some context, I want to start reading verse 8 and read through verse 10. So here's Romans 13, verse 8. Paul says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. murder, You shall not steal. You not, shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. And if there are any other commandments, they are all summed up. That's our word. In this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love works no evil to a neighbor. Therefore, love Is the fulfillment of the law. I love what Paul is saying. He says, You realize you can take any of the laws from the old covenant? And every law is fulfilled in one single thing. It's all summarized in one single thing. All the law is gathered together in one single thing. If you just do the one single thing, don't worry about it because you'll cover all the law. What's the one single thing that all law is summarized in? Love doesn't that sound like exactly what Jesus said? This scholar comes up to Jesus and says, hey Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus goes, that one's easy. The greatest commandment? Love. Love God, love others. And you realize every single law of the Old Covenant is summarized in that one word, love. Just love. And if you love, if your whole focus is love, hey, you'll have covered all the law. Because all the law is our words, summarized, gathered together, united in one place, love. Now, if you come back into the book of Ephesians then, it's interesting that Paul is saying that all things in all places is being gathered together, united, and summarized in Christ Jesus. Now, it's interesting. In Paul's day, there's all this division, right? You had men and women, and that was a huge division in that culture. You had Jews and Gentiles. That was a massive division in that culture. You had slaves and masters. I mean, that's a, that's a big division. You had the physical and the spiritual. I mean, all, all of that was these huge divisions in Paul's day. And Paul is saying, do you know what God is doing? It's, he is summarizing. He is bringing together. He is uniting all things in one single place. What is it? Jesus. Why? Why? Well, because from him and through him and to him are all things for his praise and his glory. That all this is being worked out for him. All of this is about him. See, this is the great mystery. This is all for him and through him and to him. Hey, he is summarizing this. This is his good pleasure. And this purpose, this plan that he is administrating for this perfect filling up of time is in him. Because it resides in him. This This purpose, this plan, and the mystery is all him. Do you realize that Paul says this all over the place? This idea that hey, Jesus is uniting all things. Well, just give me a few, let me give you a few passages here. But Galatians 3, verses 28 through 29. Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise it's not that the differences go away. You understand? It's not like we all become unisex. Right? No, we're still male. We're still female. But there is a unity. Yeah, there still may be slaves and there may be free men, but you realize there's unity. You recognize that Paul's saying, wow, do you recognize that Jesus is gathering together? He's summarizing and uniting all things in himself. Colossians 3.11. Paul says, In Christ... There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. In Ephesians chapter 2, 13 through 15, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, speaking of the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both one, speaking of the Jews and the Gentiles, he made them both one. And has broken down the middle wall of separation so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So just as you can summarize the entirety of the Old Testament law in this one word called love, this one action, this one fulfillment of it, Paul says all things are being united and gathered together in one person. His name is Jesus. Which goes back and reemphasizes the entire mystery. Because what is the mystery? Jesus. That this whole mystery is finding this focus upon him. That it's all about the preeminence. It's all about the centrality of Jesus Christ. And what is the mystery? Jesus. And what is all the mystery about? Well, it's the gathering together into one person. Jesus. Why? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Now, this is, don't get lost here. This is an incredible thought. This whole Idea uh, of the uniting all things. It is in the middle voice. Stick with me. Uh, in the past, we've talked about active voice, right, where the subject is doing the action. The boy hits the ball, right. So the boy is doing the doing the action, hitting the ball. Passive voice is the subject receives the action. The boy gets hit by the ball, right. So that's that's passive voice. Middle voice. Means that the subject is both doing the action and receiving the action. This morning I I woke up, went into the bathroom, I took my razor, and I, the subject, was doing the action of shaving. But I was also receiving the action of shaving. Right? I I wasn't shaving somebody else, I wasn't shaving the cat, right? (laughs) I don't have a cat, but, right? If I did, I'd probably shave it. But, <laughs> right? And it's not like I'm doing the action to something else. I'm doing the action, but I'm also receiving the action. Do you realize that the uniting all things? God is the one who is uniting all things. But the uniting all things is for him. He's receiving the action. Isn't that a fun thought? That he's the one causing all things to be united. And yet he's the one who gets the benefit of all things being united in him. So I want to read this to you. I wrote this down so I could gather all these thoughts together. <clears throat> but here's the idea. God is bringing the entire world, both nature and humanity, as Roman 8 alludes to, back under the rule, the control, the power, the authority, and the headship of Jesus Christ. Now this doesn't mean everyone will be saved. But the emphasis is that everything is finding its consummation, its fulfillment, its purpose in Jesus. As Philippians 2 9 through 11 says, Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is he doing? He's bringing all things under the headship of Jesus Christ. All things is coming under the authority, the power, the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Now we know that's true. I mean, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. That he is the rightful king sitting upon the throne right this minute. But when you look at the world, it's just like, they're not living it. They don't see it. What is this plan? He's gathering all things, all peoples, in both heaven and earth, to come, under that, to come under that authority. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. I mean, everywhere. All people, for all times, is, going, is being gathered together. Now again, we're not talking about everyone's, not everyone is saved. That's not true. People are going to go to hell, which is a tragic reality. <clears throat> but you realize that all things, all people, all time, everywhere, comes under the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. Because all things are being united in him. Well, which brings us to our final aspect here that Paul's talking about, <clears throat> which is the idea of the place he says that he's uniting all things in Christ which are in heaven and on earth. In other words, this is not some localized event. This is all things in all places. And all of it is coming and being united under the authority of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1 Verses 21 through 23, Paul is talking about the incredible power of God. And he says that Jesus has been placed, verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in that which is to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and made him head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things in all ways. That's the reality. And if you need an illustration, it's like a funnel. Have you ever seen a funnel? Right? You have this big on the top, skinny on the bottom. And it's amazing. You put something on the top, right? You put a lot of it at the top, but it's being squeezed down into this little tiny point. And it starts trickling out the bottom. That's kind of this idea of this whole uniting all things in Christ. That it's like all things go in the very top, but it's being squeezed down to this climactic point. That there's one focus. There's this one purpose There's this one climactic reality. It's Jesus. What is the funnel point? Jesus. That all things are being gathered together. They're being pushed down into this funnel. And all things are swirling downward and finding their fulfillment and their purpose in this great mystery known as Jesus Christ. What an amazing passage. For from him and through him and to him are all things, says Paul. That is the great summary of this whole thing. That this is all about Jesus. This is all about one focus. This is all about the centrality and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Not only just in our life, but in our church. Not just in our church, but in our communities. Not just in our communities, but in our countries, and our world, and the universe. Because this is all about Him. So, how do you apply this personally? Well, the question I have to ask myself is, is this true in my life? We're talking about all things are from him, through him, to him. Is that true of me? Am I truly from him? Am I living out of his life? Is the life that I'm living truly from him? Is the activities that come out of my life, is the, is the language that I talk, is, that, is it all coming from him? Or am I trying to live my life outside of Jesus? See, is my, is my life through him? <clears throat> is, is the empowerment of my life because of him? Just, just like a branch abides in a vine and the life of the vine flows through the branch and produces the fruit, is that happening in my life with Jesus? So it's not just, is my life from him and through him, but is my life unto him? Is my whole life, <clears throat> is the declaration of my soul for Jesus Christ? Is the one explanation for how I'm living Jesus? If someone was to somehow give clarity to, yes, this, you know, how are we going to define Nathan's life? Oh, it's Jesus. If that's not true, I need Jesus. By the way, I need Jesus. Because I don't know about you, I look at areas in my life going, oh, yeah, you might look at that area and go, yeah, that seems like it's, you know, looks like Jesus. But boy, this area, ooh, he needs help. I think that's true with all of us, isn't it? What would it look like if our lives truly were from him and through him and to him? See, what if our entire life was wrapped up in this grand mystery known as Jesus Christ. See, what if Jesus was the centrality of our life? What if Jesus was the focus? What if Jesus was the North Star that we pointed our life to? What if we built our life around and upon him? See, what if, as Ian Thomas said, the only explanation for our life was Jesus? See, what if the Christian life that we are living is not about us and our resource and our talent and our thought process and and our money or our whatever? What if the Christianity that we are living is not us, but from him, through him, into him. See, there is this great mystery, says Paul. And it is his delight. And he's actually given us the ability to reason and understand and grasp this grand mystery. This mystery has been hidden from ages and generations, but is now being unveiled. It is his delight to make it known. Just as he delights in lavishing grace upon us, it is his delight to showcase this phenomenal mystery called Jesus Christ. And what he is doing in this, in this reality is he's bringing all things into, he, he's mastering this grand plan. Again, in the fullness of time, not chronology, but in this, his perfect timing, he's taking all things and he's uniting all things in one place, himself. What if our lives was a picture of that in this generation? Oswald Chambers called it my utmost for his highest. That here's my life, And the best my life can produce, my utmost, is going to be for his highest. It's going to be for his glory, for his renown, for his pleasure. He can do with it whatever he wants. There's this old lady back in the Middle Ages who was just so captured by Jesus. And she wrote this statement once. I just thought it was intriguing. She said, oh, God, let me be a rag doll for Jesus. (laughs) And, of course, in that day and age, the, you know, the dolls were, you know, if they had them, it was crazy expensive. And so, you know, when, when your dish rags got really ratty and torn up, you know, you take it and you kind of like put a rubber band. They didn't have rubber bands, but, you know, like they tied tie some little rope and it made it kind of look like some little doll. And so here's your little four-year-old that has a little old dish rag, and it was your little dolly. She said, isn't it interesting that the rag doll exists for one single purpose? The pleasure of the child. And she says, oh, God, could I just be the ragdoll for Jesus? That if you pick me up and play with me one single time and then throw me against the wall and never look at me again, may that be sufficient for my soul. Because I gave the child one moment of pleasure. She goes, I want to be a ragdoll for Jesus. You realize our whole life should be from him, through him, to him, for his praise, his glory, his renown. That it is my utmost for his highest. That everything going on in my life should be for his praise and his renown. See, can that be said of your life? Can that be said of you that, that your whole life is centered upon one thing Jesus? That you're obsessed with one thing? Jesus. That you're aimed in one direction? Jesus. The North Star of your life is Jesus. The centrality of your soul is Jesus. The preeminence of all that is happening is Jesus. Is that true? Because I think for most of us, we'd have to say, well, part of the time. But what if it was all the time? Uh, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say the same thing? Paul says in Philippians 3.10, oh, that we might know him, not just know about him, but know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Do you get the whole flow of this whole thing? It's like Paul is obsessed with Jesus Christ because that's what Christianity is all about. That's what the whole point is. As 2 Peter 1.3 tells us, all that we need For life and for godliness is found in him. And Paul says God is gathering all things, funneling it down into one single point. Jesus. Could our lives look like this? Where we are just consumed, soaked, saturated, permeated, obsessed, crazy with one thing. Jesus. See, See, what if our family game times even though we're playing games and we're laughing and having fun, what if it's all about Jesus? See, what if our conversations, though it could be about whatever topic, what if the undercurrent of every conversation was Jesus? What if how you lived and how you talked and how you thought could only be defined by Jesus? Do you know what we'd have to call you? Probably we'd have to call you a Christian. Because you're the one who bears his name. You bear his likeness, his attitude, his nature. What an amazing reality. Well, if you want to join us next time for the study, we're going to be looking at verses 11 and 12. Woo, we're moving forward. is exciting? And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, what this great inheritance of the believer is. So I encourage you, if you want to study along, uh, study out what, this, what our great inheritance as a believer is. You'll never guess what it is, by the way. <laughs> but we'll save that for next time. Yeah, let's pray. Lord, we love you. Lord, this truly is all from you and through you and to you for your praise and your renown and for your glory. Lord, what would it look like if our lives truly were built around and upon you? What would it look like if our lives were aimed in one direction, pointed at this north star called Jesus? What if the only explanation for how we lived was you? Lord, could you get so big in our life could you somehow summarize our entire life, unite all things in our life under the headship of you, or could we willingly submit ourselves to your authority, your sovereignty, your power, your headship? Or there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and all things will be united under your authority, and the whole world will recognize that reality. But Lord, I don't want to wait. Lord, I want to do that now. So, Lord, I hey, would you just, through your spirit, would you examine any and every area of my life And if there's something that does not align up to your word, if there's stuff that is not there according to your heart and according to your mind, Lord, if there is sin or if there's habits or if there's junk or if there's thought processes or, Lord, whatever it may be, would you, would you come in and clean house afresh? Lord, I want the explanation for my life to be you. Lord, I want you to be soaked in every thought process that I have. I want you, no matter what I'm talking about, to be the undercurrent of every word. Lord, every action, I want to be motivated by your life. Lord, this is not for me. This is from you and through you and to you for your praise and for your glory and for your renown. May that be the reality of my life because that is what you're doing with all things in all places, for all time, It's all coming to be united in you. So Lord, hasten that day. And I know we're not focused on the chronos, the the chronology of this, but oh, Lord, may that day come soon when the fullness of this this thing takes place. and What a day of rejoicing that will be. Lord, we love you. Just give you the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name. Amen.